I'd like to bring your attention this morning to a passage that's very well known. I tremble a little bit about daring to preach on it, but it's on my heart and in my mind that we should indeed consider it. You will know it as the Lord's Prayer. It's a misnomer. The Lord did give this prayer, but it's actually the disciples' prayer. If you want to read the Lord's Prayer, go to John chapter 17. These words are not an example of how Jesus prays. They're Jesus' instruction toward us about how we can and should pray. So my sermon is titled quite simply this morning, Praying. I know I've bitten off more than I can chew. But I'd like to just dip my foot in this great ocean. It's been a blessing to me to prepare it, and I hope and pray that we can share that blessing as we study it together. There are many hymns which talk about prayer. A man called John Burton, who died in 1803, wrote this one. I often say my prayers, but do I ever pray? And do the wishes of my heart go with the words I say? I may as well kneel down and worship gods of stone as offer to the living God a prayer of words alone. For words without the heart the Lord will never hear, nor will he to those lips attend whose prayers are not sincere. Lord, show me what I need and teach me how to pray, nor let me ask thee for thy grace, not feeling what I say. Prayer is something that in one sense is very normal, ordinary for us. And the great danger then is it can just become routine and practice, which you do regularly, I hope, but almost without thinking. And it's interesting in chapter 6, the context is about the need to pray before God, to give before God, to live before God. And that's the burden that's on my heart as I bring you into this passage with me this morning. I want to consider verses 5 to 13 under three headings. Disciples want to pray. Secondly, disciples worship in prayer. And thirdly, disciples walk in prayer. Forgive me for my alliteration. It's a bad habit I learned a long time ago, and I don't seem to be able to leave it behind but we'll use those, God willing, this morning to consider this passage together. You do need to actually just have a quick glimpse at Luke chapter 11, because it helps us get the context. Luke chapter 11 and just the first verse. And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. It was from that that I concluded that Christ's followers want to pray. They want to know how to pray. They want to know what to pray about. It's not just some kind of psychological calming effect on the soul, although it does that with great power. It is by definition, a living communication 
with God our Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Disciples want to pray. That takes me back to verse 5, verse 6, and verse 7, when the Lord Jesus says three times, when thou prayest. They want to pray, and you will see in each of those verses that same phrase. Jesus gives them specific instructions about prayer. Prayer, as I've studied it, and I'm persuaded, is the single distinctive mark of a believer, a disciple, or a follower of Jesus Christ. You became a Christian through prayer. You pleaded with the Lord to save you, and he did. And that's where it begins. And it then is to be a model and pattern for the rest of your days. When Ananias is sent to the apostle Paul or Saul, as he would have been at that time after his conversion, Ananias was quite rightly terrified. But you read just these few words in Acts chapter 9 and verse 11. Behold, he prayeth. And from God, that was the communication to Ananias that would still his heart and mind and confirm that the man he was to approach was no longer that raging monster who would come to put Christians in prison. He's been transformed and the transformation is seen in that he is praying. So I put it to you that the very mark of a disciple is that we pray. We're told that it's calling on the name of the Lord that saves us. Joel chapter 2 and verse 32, repeated in Acts 21, in Acts 2 and verse 21, Romans 10, 11 and following. It's those who call on the name of the Lord who are saved. God works in us by his regenerating grace, gives us a new heart, or as I've sometimes said, a heart for God. And that heart now says, I must talk with him. I must resolve the issue of sin. I must confess that I need to be saved. I must ask him to save me. My second favorite book is Pilgrim's Progress. And as I say that, I think of Christian in the slough of despond. Sinking because he can't find a solid footing. And he has a one-word prayer. Help! And Bunyan writes a few lines later, and help came. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you. Psalm 50, I think. The Christian church is distinguished in that she prays. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he writes to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, and all who in every place call on the name of, the, of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. You see, it is the distinctive identifying mark of a Christian. And then the mark of a believer. The Lord of glory came amongst us, took human form, 
lived as a man, emptied himself, to use the words of Philippians, took the form of a man, lived in a real world. And what you find when you look at the life of the Lord Jesus is he prays continually, setting the model and the pattern that, that, that stirred the disciples to say to him, teach us to pray. Prayer is the key that identifies a Christian. Prayer is the mark which then is distinguished all the way through his life. If you have time sometime today, it's such a big subject. You look at the Lord Jesus and check how many times he prays. You find him at his baptism with John praying and the heavens open. You find him on the cross when he's dying for our sins. And his penultimate words are, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Now, if you know your Bible, you'll know in the seven sayings there are other prayers. But it's quite intriguing, isn't it, that our, our, our Gospels begin and end with the God-man talking to his Father. And where more distinctly than in John chapter 17 almost universally agreed to be one of the most profoundly beautiful chapters in the Bible. Dear friends, Jesus is a man of prayer and he calls us, he challenges us to go on praying. And so you get that little phrase in uh, verse 6, when you pray. The Lord begins by setting boundaries on prayer. And truly, we need that. Because prayer is one of the almost most universally misunderstood things in the whole world. Some people think prayer is just reciting some words. And then you go into Buddhism, and it's always fascinated me. They have prayer wheels. And I remember watching a program on Tibet. And on the highest mountains, they have these prayer wheels positioned so that the wind makes them spin. And they believe that then the prayers are being extended into the world. That's not the kind of prayer you find Jesus taking part in. It's not just repeating some words. If you're of my generation, you learned the Lord's Prayer at school. Now, it did us good, we've remembered it, but it also had potential to do us harm. It just became a few words that you had to say before your school lessons began. You and I need to understand that prayer is appointed by God and expected from God's people. And when we pray, we need to remember, verse 5, we're not putting on a show. When thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites. The word hypocrite means a play actor. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. It's not a place to show off. 
It's not a place to impress people. And maybe younger Christians need to hear that. You come into our prayer meetings and some of us have been on the road a long time and we're very familiar with prayer and you listen and you think, I can never pray like that. God doesn't want you to pray like that. He wants you to pray like you, where you are. And it may only be a sentence or two, but hallelujah, it's what God is looking for. You see that his people would be concerned to pray, not so that people will think they're doing well. The second thing he says in verse 6, When thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut the door, pray to thy Father, which is in secret, and thy Father, which seeth in secret, shall reward thee openly. Prayer is personal. One of the distinctive marks of Jesus' ministry is his use of the name Father for God. The Old Testament, Yahweh or Jehovah, never passes his lips, except perhaps where he quotes an Old Testament verse. He came to open up a relationship to God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. You will be saying, and no man comes to the Father but by me, but just change it a little bit. I hope I'm not becoming a heretic. And, and every man who prays comes to the Father through me. That's what we now have. That's where we now are. It is possible to find references to God as Father in the Old Testament, but it's not the normal. God was awesome, majestic, distant for most people. The best you could do was watch the high priest vanish into the Holy of Holies once a year. Now Jesus introduces us to this awesome personal truth that God is our Father. And do you notice what he says as he goes down to verse 8? But, sorry, be, ye, be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things you have need of before you ask him. Here we have a, an incredible picture of a personal God who's intimately familiar with your life and mine. Somebody might be saying, if he knows, why do I, I need to ask? Because it brings you into that place where you're ready to receive it. Many of us have had the privilege of raising children. And in that process, you're aware that... You don't sit your three-year-old behind the steering wheel of a car and say, off you go. And probably if we thought, we could find many other ridiculous examples. But when they get to the years where they can drive, they say, Mom, Dad, will you teach me to drive? Parents knew that that was coming, but they wait for that time and that place. And I put it to you, this is the case with our prayers before God. He understands when you and I can receive what we need. I read through the whole chapter because it's a beautiful chapter, isn't it? It's speaking about God's care for us. The intimacy of it. 
a father's care for his own people. The third boundary that's set here is in verse 7. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. It's interesting, as the heathen do. You see, prayer was a common thing, even amongst the heathen. You get an insight into it, don't you? Way back in 1 Kings chapter 18, when there's been the drought and Elijah is set up against all the, the priests of Baal. And if you read the account, Elijah makes it very clear the, the sacrifices are to be set on their altars and only God can ignite it. And so the priests of Baal jump up and down, cut themselves, jump on the altar, trying to twist Baal's arm up his back so that he'll now give them what they want. I hope you know the rest of the narrative, that it's an, an incredible failure. You see, God is not going to be manipulated by us badgering him. He's my father. He knows what I need. He's also promised to give me what I need. And so when I have a need, I find a promise. It was Mr. Spurgeon who says that prayer is inverted promise. And you find a promise in the, the Bible. Find it, and if it's not to be used there and then, mark it for later. So that you come to God and you talk to your father without badgering him, without saying it. When I studied this verse, it deeply troubled me that I had been taught just to repeat the Lord's Prayer when I was a child. Now, I realize that some folk will argue it was good for you. It was. But the danger in it is, you see, that it just becomes what you do when that part of the service comes up. And I don't think it was ever meant to be what's called a rote prayer, R-O-T-E. This is a framework which equips us to talk to God. And God quite rightly says, I'm not here to be bullied, to be badgered. I already know your needs. Come with the right attitude. Come with that spirit of love and adoration. And trust me, John Calvin remarks that Christians are to pray to alert themselves to seek him, to exercise their faith by meditating upon his promises, unburdening their cares by lifting themselves into his bosom, and finally, to testify that from him alone, all good for themselves and for others is hoped and asked. We have a heavenly father who has appointed that we should pray. We should pray. Think again in the Psalms. His ear is toward you. His eye is upon you. And I love that Psalm which talks about him collecting our tears in a bottle. Nothing is missed if you're a child of God. It's not a duty. It's a delight 
when you begin to understand what's before you, when you begin to have insight into what is actually happening when you pray. It's, an, it's a great privilege. And my exhortation then, first of all, to all of us who are disciples, who are followers of Jesus Christ, can I, can I ask you just to take a health check on your prayer life? I have a book in my library, and it's called Too Busy Not to Pray. I'm not very keen on the author, but the title gets right across what I need to say. Martin Luther is on record that when he has, was going to have to get very busy that day, he would get up an hour early so he could spend an extra hour in prayer. It's a real challenge. And as I come here today, I don't come as your judge. As I've said, God has been ministering to me through this passage. Prayer is absolutely essential. Better to go without your food or sleep than to go without praying. God has made you for himself and he expects you to turn to him. Use the privilege for those who are not Yet Christians, can I impress upon you the vital, urgent necessity of even right now where you're sitting of turning to God in prayer? He only hears one prayer from a sinner. And that is, Lord, forgive me and give me Jesus as my Savior. I tell you, when that happens, it's the beginning of a, an incredible incredible future prayer is the Christian's vital breath is it James Montgomery who wrote it the Christian's native ear his watchword at the gates of death he enters heaven with prayer disciples want to pray disciples worship in prayer and to that end, I want to take your attention to verses 9 and 10. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Prayer is not just about asking for what I need. Prayer is first and foremost an opportunity to bow before God and worship him. I read the end of Psalm 2 deliberately as we began, where we were exhorted to bow and kiss the Son, to worship God. It's intriguing to look at the meanings of words used in the Bible. But the word worship means to kiss towards somebody. And it would normally have involved you in bowing before them. When a Psalm 2 brings before us, the heathen are called to kiss Jesus' feet. You see, worship is an attitude of heart and mind which expresses reverence and never more so than in our prayer life. We don't just rush in and say, here's my shopping list, God. 
Some people use the anacronym, is that the right word? A acts as a guideline for prayer. I found it very helpful personally. A adoration. C confession. T thanksgiving. Notice that's three quarters of it. Then supplication. Prayer is worship. Prayer is coming before God, not just to recite words, but absolutely convinced of his majesty, his power, his glory, and, and, and the privilege that's ours. The psalmist says in 95.6, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. John 4.23, The hour is coming and now is, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Now listen to how it finishes. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. This is the purpose of the gospel. To reconnect us with our creator. In the garden, when, men, when man and woman were created, there appears to have been a, a, an immediate communication between them and God. And what you find is that when Adam and Eve sin, that communication's broken. Because you have these words in Genesis 3 and verse 9. The Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? You see, sin had broken the connection between man and God. Isaiah 59 is at verse 2. Your sins and your iniquities have caused a separation between you and your God. And so when you come to God in prayer, what, what, what you're being asked to do is to express your awareness that the disconnection has been removed. Sorry for the bad grammar. Because when you came and cried out to be saved, you became a child of God. And from here on in, you get that phrase in the book of Hebrews twice. It always fascinates me when the scriptures repeat themselves. To come boldly to the throne of grace. That's the child of God's purpose. And you'll know when you're coming before God because you will indeed worship him. Each of the phrases here would almost demand a sermon on its own. I need to go through them quickly. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father. Whenever I use this, I stop there. God is my Father. Not just mine, but the father of every true believer. It's our. But this reminds me that once I was in darkness and God sought me with the word of God and I became a child of God, to quote John chapter 1, not by the will of man, but by the will of God. And so the profound miracle of salvation is not just a rescue from drowning. It's a, a rescue into the very presence and family of God. If you read the book of Galatians, Paul is quite clear. 
that the old barriers are now being broken down and Jew and Gentiles together are children of God. And so when I see our Father, I, I want to pause and remember what an incredible thing it is that I'm given this privilege. You'll see many books which tell you that the word Father here probably comes from the Aramaic. And the word in the Aramaic would be Abba. You get that word in Mark chapter 14 when Jesus is praying. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And again, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, I, I, I want to just ask you to exercise caution. There are some people who see Abba and they immediately say, well, it's just baby talk. I was reminded in my research that Abba was how an adult would address their father as well. And it's to be used respectfully, expressing the incredible nature of whose you are and which family you now are part of. And with a concern that his name should be hallowed. Now, whenever you express the name of God, it's not, well, nobody here would do it, would they? It's not just a, an empty curse word. To say God is to switch on your mind and connect you with the eternal. But we live in a world where, I'm not even going to repeat it, they use it just to fill sentences when they've got nothing better to say. When we say God, when we say Father, we come and we come with a reverent respect of his majesty and power. Do you know that God created time? That God created space? That God then created this planet and populated it and, and, and put it all in place so he could say it was all very good inside seven days? If that doesn't blow your brains, nothing will. He's awesome, glorious, majestic, splendid beyond comprehension. And so we are to come before him and to hallow his name. You'll have noticed I just skipped over a little bit because he says, Our Father which art in heaven. This points to God's sovereignty. God created the world outside of himself. He inhabited it completely, but he existed before the world did and will exist even at the very end of the ages when it has to all be recycled according to 2 Peter or 1 Peter. God is eternal, without beginning, without end, never changing. He's holy, he's righteous. He's also the sovereign Lord of history. He sits on the circle of the earth, I think it says in the book of Job. Helping us to understand his overall majesty and control of what's happening. The Lord Jesus has ascended to his right hand. Ephesians 1, I think it's 22, tells us he's now ruling and reigning over all things on behalf of his church. I like the last phrase, 
It's fabulous to remember how majestic he is, but what's he using his power for his bride, the church? And so as we come with these words, you've said them so many times. You may have wondered what on earth I was going to be saying to you today, but, but, but I hope I'm beginning to stretch your mind and the spirit might set you on fire with wonder, worship and praise. And when you realize what he is, then our prayer is that his kingdom will come, that his will will be done. And you have to notice the words. I'm going to expand them a little bit, as is already taking place in heaven. Way back at the beginning, God had made a perfect world and put a perfect man and woman in it to enjoy it, to look after it, to walk in fellowship and communion with him. And Satan came and said, you can't trust him. And our foolish ancestors agreed with him. And every human being has been in rebellion with him ever since. God's purpose and plan is to reverse that rebellion. The Old Testament, we have a record of human failure. The best of men were men at best. Abraham, David, they're flawed. The New Testament begins with a record of God taking the matter in hand himself. There's not a human being can deliver us from sin, so God comes as a man. Lives a perfect life. Gets the Roman authorities to declare him not guilty. And then surrenders to the cross. Another book title from an author I wouldn't recommend. He chose the nails. The Lord of glory at any moment could have said, that's enough, stop. No man takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. I have, it's not permission, isn't it? I've been given permission to do this. And so you have this incredible picture. What is God's ultimate goal, aim, and plan? It's so that as you read at the end of Revelation, this whole world is restored to its original condition. The Bible begins with a garden and ends with a garden. And the garden in the middle of Gethsemane is where sin is dealt with. So when you come in prayer, God says, now you're a child of God. Make it your choice. Make it your purpose to identify with my plan. Your kingdom come. It began with Jesus. Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. And it's now exploding as people are added to it through the work of the Holy Spirit. We are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love. But all the time till the end of time, it will be less than perfect. The king will come with king of kings and lord of lords written on his thigh. And he will establish forever the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Make it your prayer. It's one of the marks that you are indeed trusting him. You don't go to God and say, do this for me. 
you go to God and say, let's, let me be involved in seeing your kingdom come. Are you aware of that little phrase in James? You, in James, you have not because you ask not and because you would spend it in vain. Again, forgive me, getting old is affecting my brain. But, but, but you get the picture, don't you? God has appointed that certain things will only take place when his people make it their goal, aim, and purpose. And it's right here in the prayer. Your will be done. The Lord of glory spoke it in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will be done, but yours. The perfect man, the perfect example. The battle of life. We all think we know what's best for us. Only God does. We all imagine if we could get through life without a scrape, we would be doing fine. But even the Apostle Paul has to learn that there are some things God allows into our life which we don't like. And he promises them, though, my grace is sufficient for you. Because... As the athlete goes to the gymnasium to develop muscles and to increase their capability, God allows us into the gymnasium of life. And sometimes we go through difficulty. Not that the difficulty is an end in itself, but to develop our spiritual muscles that we might be emboldened and enabled. And when you come like that, then you are worshipping. You are bowing toward, you are kissing the Lord, you are making him your goal and focus. You're actually saying, not only are you glorious, but your will is best. Now, you will wrestle with that. There will be times when you want to ask the question, why? And I don't think there's any problem with asking why. But then you need to come and be still before God. To recognize he doesn't give us all the answers. The things that are revealed are for us and our children, but the secret things belong to the Lord. An easy verse to remember, Deuteronomy 29, 29. He tells us what we need to know, and he, tells, no, he asks us to trust us, to trust him for what we don't need to know. And get on with living. And that will be a challenge in our day. We live in a world where... What was his name? Frank Sinatra's song has become the mantra, I did it my way. And everybody's running about mad because they can't get to do it their way. They imagine that they're in control. And there might be an unbeliever who's here today and thinking that. Oh, I hear you about this prayer thing, but I'll sort my own life out, thank you. Here's the tragedy. You're absolutely deluded. You're like that man that filled his barns and Jesus announced to be a... That's right. I'm not going to call you it. God does. But the grace of the gospel says, turn to me in prayer. Admit your own rebellious self-assertion. Cast yourself on Christ and you will be saved. And then, Christian, it's your job and mine Today and daily, look to him and express that looking in my third point. I've just looked at the time. I'll bring it to a conclusion as quickly as I can. 
Notice these words. You've said them often. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. What's happening? Remember, the Lord Jesus has set boundaries on prayer. The Lord Jesus has established prayer as worship. The Lord Jesus now says, in our prayer life, we are to talk to God about our daily need. And when he mentions bread here, he's not talking about what you bought at the supermarket yesterday or the day before. In the first century, bread was the staple of many diets. It's all they had some days. And it wouldn't last till tomorrow. It would normally be stale by evening. So you needed fresh bread every day. But of course, the Lord's not simply talking about bread here. He's, he's using bread as a metaphor for everything we need for life. And so here you have an encouragement to come to your sovereign, majestic Father and talk to him about the things you need. Cast all your cares upon him, Peter says, for he cares for you. This chapter ends up, and it's a, a challenging chapter. Take no thought about tomorrow. You know how the birds are fed, the flowers are fashioned. Trust God. And so by coming and asking for your daily bread, you're recognizing that everything you need has to come to you from your Heavenly Father. It's interesting, then he says, immediately forgive us our debts. In Luke's gospel, it's forgive us our sins. But the word debt is significant here, and it, it, it deserves a wee bit thinking about. When you borrow something, you're indebted to pay it back. I hope nobody's in serious financial trouble, but you can at least imagine it. But day by day, you need somebody else to supply your need because you've not got the means yourself. And even if they give it with the best of their will, you, you still feel indebted to them. The word here in debt describes the fact that everything we ever have, use, and enjoy belongs to God. And therefore, everything that you use in this world should be recognized as such. And yet so much of what we do, we, we, we never imagine that it belongs to God and we need to say thank you. I worked in America for a short time, so a long, long time ago. But, but one of the things that struck me was the American habit of saying grace. Us Scottish or British people, we're a wee bit shy about it, aren't we? But even when they were out in public, in the most public restaurants and cafeteria, you would see all the heads bowing. A recognition, you see. Even when you buy the top nosh in the best restaurant, the chef should be thanked, but ultimately God should be thanked. And so as we drift through life and we use God's resources without giving thanks to him, we are accumulating debt. I had a verse written here. I'm trying not to use my notes. Colossians 2.14 talks about Jesus' death as being the place where he wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. That handwriting of requirements can be translated as the written note of debts. 
So sin is not just being a bad person. Sin is forgetting to acknowledge God is the source of everything we enjoy. And tragically, we do that as Christians. We can slip into the world's way of thinking. And so here, the Lord Jesus wants us to understand that we talk to God about everything we need for life. And admit to God that all too often we use what we get in life without remembering where it comes from. The last part here is beautiful, isn't it? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I'll leave the doxology for another day. Look at it carefully. Lead us not into temptation. In in the Bible, you need to stop at the word temptation. It actually is the same word that's described as testing. I've just been reading one of the Puritans on temptation and he's fascinated me. He makes the point it's not wrong to be tempted or tested. Thoughts will cross your mind. Opportunities will present themselves. But he says it's what you do with the temptation that matters. And he he introduced something which I've probably read before but needed to hear again. The idea that there's a stage between meeting the temptation and falling into it. And he called it being entangled. That the temptation, you've not done anything wrong but you're thinking about it. Maybe even attracted to it. Maybe even thinking, well, just this one time. And he warns you then to watch and pray that when the temptation comes, you need to understand at that moment in time it's a test whether you will trust God or whether you'll go with your gut. And when you pray like this and make it your day and daily prayer, you're going to be better equipped to deal with temptation. To live a holy life. To represent a holy God. To shine as lights in a dark world. My dear friends, to fall into temptation is to go with the devil. Let me get the words right. Deliver us from evil. Some translations have the evil one. Because there are two kingdoms in the world. I know which one will finally survive, but in the meantime, we have a deluded fallen angel who is seeking just to keep everybody in line and in his camp. And he's been at it for thousands of years. So that when you get yourself in the temptation, you might be coming up against it for the first time and hopefully the last, but he knows exactly how to capture you. The audacity of Satan. When the Lord Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted or tested, he's right there. You're hungry? Look at that boulder. Make it bread. A very basic human need. The danger of leaving my notes as I begin to ad-lib, I'm going to Clip my tongue. Can I commend to you this prayer? 
so that you make it your day and daily practice. God's not going to jump all over you if you've let it slip. But he is going to encourage you if today you come back and make prayer the essential foundation of your life, looking to God in Christ. I'd written down in my notes, you can no, lo- no sooner breathe underwater than live without prayer. It's so essential. Prayer is the Christian's vital breath. What keeps you alive? Possible because Christ has died for you. One very clever person, all I'm giving him the credit, wrote, God has only one son who lived without sin, but he has never had a son that lived without prayer. Come back. Make it your business. Remember, you don't have to show off. Just talk to him. And if you're not a Christian... You need the Holy Spirit to break your heart and to show you that no matter what you accomplish in this world, you might become some very distinguished public character. But if you do it without Christ, you're a miserable failure. You're lost. Pilgrim's Progress tells a story of presumptuous, I think it is, at the end, doesn't he? You've had the description of Christian arriving at the celestial city. His certificate goes in and he, he, he gets in to glory. And in presumption, maybe you can correct me if I've got the wrong name, I hope you know the book, arrives and he bangs on the door, let me in, let me in. Where's your certificate? I haven't got one. The certificate is of adoption into the family of God, given to Christian at the cross when the burden rolls off his back. And then Bunyan soberingly tells you that there is in fact a side door to hell at the very door to the celestial city. If you're not a Christian, it breaks my heart to think that you would be so foolish as to imagine you can be the exception. Repent. Believe. Come to Christ today. Pray that prayer. Lord, save me. And your whole world will change forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we bless you and thank you that there's much more to praying than even I've begun to talk about. Just scratch the surface. I pray, Lord, yes, pray that you'll keep us all praying and walking in the light and the truth and the joy of saving faith in Christ. Bless this little church, Lord. I know there are praying people. Answer their prayers. May it be for your glory and the furtherance of your kingdom. Have mercy, O Lord, on any who are not yet resting in the joy of who Christ is. For Jesus' sake. Amen.